0: Good morning. My name is Anne-Marie Chambaugh, and today's reading is from Ephesians 1, 15 through 23. For this reason, because I have heard of your faith in the Lord Jesus and your love toward all the saints, I do not cease to give thanks for you, remembering you in my prayers, that the God of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of glory, may give you the spirit of wisdom and of revelation and the knowledge of him, having the eyes of your hearts enlightened, that you may know what is the hope to which he has called you, What are the riches of his glorious inheritance in the saints? And what is the immeasurable greatness of his power toward us who believe, according to the working of his great might, that he worked in Christ when he raised him from the dead and seated him at his right hand in the heavenly places, far above all rule and authority and power and dominion, and above every name that is named, not only in this age, but also in the one to come. And he put all things under his feet and gave him as head over all things to the church, which is his body, the fullness of him who fills all in all. This is the word of the Lord.
1: Uh, I've only had a circumstance uh, happen uh, like this one uh, a few times in my life, Uh, so it was really grabbed by this story that I ran across recently. A man named Robert Weber uh, was flying from Los Angeles to San Francisco a couple of years ago and he was sitting in the window seat and and reading a Christian book and another guy came in and uh, sat down next to him, a man who was uh, by appearances uh, from uh, the Orient and uh, the man was looking at uh, the book that Weber was reading and asked him, are you a religious person? And Weber said, uh, yes, I am. And uh, they began talking about religion and faith. And in the middle of the conversation, uh, Weber asked, could you give me in, in one sentence uh, just sort of a summary of, of your faith, of what you believe? And the man said, yeah, sure. Uh, I believe that we are all part of the problem and that we are all part of the solution, and uh, they they talked about this uh, one liner as kind of a helpful summary statement for you know condensing what we believe and uh, and after a while Weber said uh, could I share with you uh, a one liner that summarizes my Christian faith and the man said yeah sure I'd be glad to hear it and and Weber said we are all part of the problem but there is only one man who is the solution and that is Jesus Christ alone. Is one of the five solas of the Reformation. We're taking time this month of October to uh, remember and celebrate the 500th anniversary of this uh, renewal, of this uh, reformation of the church's belief and practices. Uh, Christ alone emphasizes that Jesus' sacrificial death is not only necessary for us to be saved, for us to be rescued, for us to be changed, but it is sufficient. That is, there's nothing for us to add. No amount of human works or human effort or human merit or goodness can add anything to what Jesus has done for us. And that, Christ's sufficiency, then implicitly tells us we are not sufficient in ourselves. I don't have it in me to save myself, to heal myself, to change myself, to rescue myself or to earn anything before God. One theologian put it this way, the heart of the gospel is not about us. It is about Christ for us, what Christ came to do for us, because we could not and would not do what needed to be done. That is that Jesus came, Jesus obeyed, Jesus died on a cross in our place, Jesus was raised, and Jesus ascended to the Father's hand where he rules. And the medieval church had confused that work and and had mixed in with the gospel a message that was more about what Christ is doing with us And what we were supposed to be doing in partnership with Christ in order to receive all the blessings and the benefit and and the life of Jesus. Salvation through Christ alone, the reformer said, is the heart of the gospel. And the practices, the teachings that the reformers wanted to challenge were problematic because they were getting Jesus wrong. The church was either adding to or taking away from what Christ had done and replacing Jesus' work or adding to Jesus' work with our own. That is what this passage is about, Christ alone, in Ephesians 1:15 to 23. If you haven't turned there already, you can grab that black uh, Bible that looks like this in front of you. It's page 1159, or you can pull it up on your phone or your Bible app or whatever you use. Paul talks about us in verses 18 and 19, which are kind of the center of this passage. He talks about us knowing God's hope, God's inheritance, and God's power. His incomparably great power. And and that's a phrase that we want to spend a couple of minutes on. In, In Greek, this great power is... Megathos dunameos. It's where we get our words like megaton and, and dynamite. They're obviously action words and power words. But the real kicker is in this phrase immeasurable greatness of his power, incomparable greatness of his power. Now, you know, normally we try and measure something by comparing it to something else. So you would say, you know, a hurricane has one one one-thousandth the power of a nuclear bomb. And a nuclear bomb has one one one-millionth the power of a a solar flare on the sun. And a solar flare on the sun has one one one-billionth of the power of a supernova. We, We measure the greatness of things in relation to something else. So how do we describe the greatness of God? Is it is it a billion billion supernovas? Paul is saying, no, God is not at the top of the scale. He transcends the scale. There's no scale by which we can measure the greatness of his glory and his power. We're, we're told again and again in the Bible that all power belongs to God. And and that doesn't mean that, that God has more power than anything else. It means that anyone or anything that has any power at all, it's because of God. It's from God. God has all the power. And that points us in the direction to answer this question. Where do we find eternal purpose and limitless inheritance and great power? Who is it that's in charge? Who who is it that can determine the the course of events or what happens in the world? Paul says that Jesus has been given a name that is above every name, above every title. The Bible says God brings all rulers and all powers to nothing. That is power. Do you believe that? Because what Paul is getting at here is, is he's saying, I pray that the eyes of your hearts would be enlightened, that you would know the hope that he's called you to, that you would know the riches of his inheritance in the saints, and you would know the incomparable greatness of his power. We might agree that those things are true about God, but Paul is asking the question, do you know those things? Do you know them like Jesus knows them? Like Jesus experienced them? Has it sunk into my life? Does it change the way that I think and act? Does it shape the way that I respond to people? Does knowing God in this way direct my priorities at all? Because that's what Paul is getting at here. Look at how he goes on in verse 19, that this greatness of his power towards us who believe, that, that towards us or for us is a little Greek word that can, that can also have the sense of through us or in us. Paul is saying that this very power of God that he wants us to know would come to be in us and make a difference in us as it goes out to change us and the way that we interact in this world. That's what power is, right? Power, just a basic dictionary definition, is the ability to do things. It's the freedom and the ability to make a difference, to to make choices and to take actions that accomplish something in the world. And the question that Paul is raising is, do you not just know about the power of God in that way? but do you know it? Do you experience it? Now this passage in Ephesians 1 has so much in it that, that we can't cover everything here. But what we want to look at today is how Jesus alone is the source of power. Power to give us life, power to give us hope, and power to change us. So let's dig into this together. First, Paul is saying only Jesus has the power to give us life. Only Jesus. Paul says, I want you to understand this incomparably great power of God. And he says, the way that we understand it is in the resurrection of Jesus. Now, off the bat, you could kind of wonder, why would Paul pick that example? To illustrate God's power. Because there's any number of things. What God's power in parting the Red Sea. I mean, that's impressive. God's power in creating the world. I mean, that's power, right? God's power in sustaining the world so that planets and stars continue in their orbits. That is impressive. But instead, Paul goes through the resurrection of Jesus as the demonstration of God's power. And here is why. Because of all the power that there is... In the world, there is no power like death. It is the one power that is the greatest enemy, the greatest overwhelming force. Think about, you know, we've seen the effect of hurricanes and storms in in the southern U.S., the Gulf states, and in, in the Caribbean. And why do we say that a hurricane is powerful? But because it carries something of the power of death with it, right? I mean, we see the destruction and the chaos and the devastation that it brings with it. It's, it's powerful. And, and human beings made in God's image can harness some of that kind of power, both, both to create. I mean, we, we can make impressive buildings that will outlast us by thousands of years. We can build computers that can think faster than us. And yet every one of us is going to die. With all our power, there is an enemy that is greater than us. The Bible calls death the last enemy. Not, not just chronologically, the last enemy to be defeated, but if you think about it, if you could beat the power of death, that last great enemy, you, you would have it made, right? I mean, there's nothing else to fear. If you literally have power over death, and you wanted to take you know, a nice sunny vacation, you could hop in a SpaceX rocket ship and go sit on the surface of the sun because you have power over death, right? You could get a really good tan that way for the weekend. If you had power over death, you'd be the greatest soldier who ever lived because you have nothing to fear, right? Bullets can't stop you. You'd be the bravest hero ever because you'd have nothing to fear because you have beaten the power of death. If you can defeat death, There's nothing that would stand in your way. There is no other power. And that is the one thing that we cannot do and that we will never be able to do ourselves. And it's exactly what God has done for us in Christ alone. Peter in Acts 2, when he's talking about God's work through his son, he's telling the people in Jerusalem, God raised Jesus from the dead because it was impossible for death to keep its hold on him. That's why Paul can say, you know, elsewhere in 1 Corinthians, death, where is your sting? And grave, where is your victory? I mean, that's like a taunt, right? He's like in death's face and laughing at him. What has to happen for us to be able to laugh and taunt in the face of death. In an old sermon by Ray Stedman, he tells a story of a young Lutheran minister who was put to death in Nazi camps in World War II. Uh, The pastor was not anyone famous. You've never heard of him, but uh, he had written a letter to his parents shortly before he died, and the parents saved the letter, and it was published after the war. Listen to what this man says. On his way to die. When this letter comes into your hands, dear mother and father, I shall no longer be among the living. The thing that has occupied my thoughts for a number of months is now about to happen, and I can only say I am first in a joyous mood, and second, filled with a wonderful anticipation. God will wipe every tear from my eyes. What consolation! What marvelous strength emanates from faith in Christ. I am amazed in him, and today I have faith in him more firmly than ever. My parents, look anywhere you want in the Bible, and everywhere we find jubilation over the grace that makes us children of God. What can happen to a child of God? What should I be afraid of? The things that up to this time I have been only permitted to preach about, now I will see. From the very beginning, I have put everything into the hands of God. And now he demands this end of me. Good. His will be done. And so we will meet again above in the presence of the Father of lights. Your joyful son, Herman. I don't know. I hope I could say something like that in the face of my own death. I'd like to think I'd be able to write a letter like that. What kind of power enables a mortal human being to be able to laugh, to even rejoice in the face of our one great enemy? Here's the staggering thing that Paul wants us to see. That power is working in us if we are in Christ. That incomparable power. You know, how how do you measure something like that? I mean, to to measure something, we need a scale. We need a a unit of measurement, right? If you ask, how much does this Bible weigh? And I said, well, it weighs about three. Three what? What? right? Three ounces, three pounds, three kilograms, three tons. I mean, I have to know what scale you're measuring on. And and Paul is saying, here is the scale, here is the unit of measurement. The only way you can measure God's power is the death-breaking resurrection power of Jesus Christ to defeat the one enemy that we cannot defeat. And Paul says that power is now at work in you who believe. That means that the things that are of death in our lives, the decay, destructive emotions and habits and and addictions and confusion and brokenness, all those things are, are themselves gradually being broken by the power of Christ and Yeah, I mean, we look at our lives and and we can see, sometimes we see evidence of it and sometimes it's not sure that God's doing anything and sometimes it's hard to see any progress. But eventually, if you are in Christ, the promise is that the death-destroying resurrection power of Jesus will reign victorious in you. And only Jesus is the one that can give us that power. Because Christ alone has the power to give us life. That's why Paul can write in Philippians, for example, I am confident that he who began a good work in you will carry it to completion. How how can you be so sure? I mean, there are days when I'm not sure, right? Because I look at me and and the mess and the failure and the sin and how I've blown it over and over again. And how could I be confident that God is going to complete that work in me? You know, I know that God started the work, but man, I have failed time and time again. You know how Paul can have that confidence? Because Paul's confidence is in Christ alone. And he knows deep down in his bones the incomparably great power of Christ that is at work in him. Probably nobody here is arguing with me about about what we've just looked at, but do you know it? Do you know that it's true of you, that it's true for you, that Christ is in you, and that power is at work in you by the risen Jesus, Do you rejoice in it? Do you understand it? Do you live out of it? Because when we do, that gives us hope. And it's only Christ who has the power to give us real hope. Paul talks, again remember, that that our eyes would be open to know the hope that he has called us to. And, And he explains a little bit more of what that means down in verse 22. Look there, he's. He says, God put all things under Christ's feet and gave him his head over all things to the church, which is his body, the fullness of him who fills all in all, or who fills everything in every way. Now, don't miss what Paul is saying here. He's saying Jesus is said to be a, a head over all all things that he is ruling he is directing everything for us and at the same time he's saying yet we are also part of christ we are connected to him that that jesus is the head and we are the body the church the community of god's people is said to be the body of christ and and so there's two kinds of power at work here there's a power that god exercises for us in ordering and ruling over things through christ for his purposes and, and there's a power that god exercises in us there's an external power and an internal power at work here Do you, you see what paul is getting at he's saying god has placed everything under christ and made him to be head over everything for God's people. I mean, this is an echo of Romans 8.28, right? That God is working for the good in all things for those who love him and are called according to his purpose. This is saying that, that if you belong to Christ, everything that happens out there Everything that is happening in your life, everything that is going on in the world, everything that looks confusing and crazy and nonsensical and threatening and fearful, God is superintending it for his purposes in you. And I I love that image of, you know, the the beautiful woven tapestry and there's this lovely picture on the front of it, except we're on the backside of it. And what we see are all the strings and the knots and the tangle and it doesn't make any sense to us. But sometimes God lets us sort of come around and, and get a glimpse of the front of the tapestry that he's weaving. Tim Keller tells a story of coming to his first pastorate in, in Virginia at a little Presbyterian church. Uh, he said they were struggling congregation, they were happy to get a pastor, and I, and I was glad to be there with them, and, and one day I was explaining this passage in Ephesians 1 to them, and I said to them, uh, I'm glad I'm here, you're glad I'm here, I'm glad it's worked out, but do you know why I'm here, he said. It was at the very end of my seminary career that I became a Presbyterian. And that's why he came to this Presbyterian church. But do you know why he became a Presbyterian? He said, it's because I came under the teaching, the influence of a a particular professor. And do you know why I came under that guy's influence? Because uh, the the administration was able to pull some strings uh, with his immigration status that had been some red tape, and, and he was able to come over at the last minute. And that happened... Because the dean of the school was praying on his knees in his office with the door open, saying, Lord, how are we going to get this man here? We're, we're, we're at an impasse. And a student named, uh, sorry, I forgot his name, because I don't know him personally. Uh, a student named Mike Ford walked by, and he asked the dean what he was praying about, and he told him, and Mike Ford said, I can help cut that red tape. And how was Mike Ford able to do that? Because Mike Ford happened to be the son of Gerald Ford, who was president of the United States. Now, why was Gerald Ford president of the United States? Because Richard Nixon had resigned. Why had Nixon resigned? Because of the Watergate scandal. Why was there a Watergate scandal? Because a janitor was walking down the hallway in the Watergate office complex and happened to notice a door that was sticking open. And he went to go figure out what's going on here. And that's how the whole Watergate scandal blew up. And Keller looked at his people and said, What am I doing here? Watergate. (laughs) God used Watergate to bring me here. That is the God that we serve. Occasionally, God lets us see that. But most of the time, we're walking by faith and not by sight. All things, all things, are for you. God is knitting and weaving everything together because Christ is ruling over it all and in all. That's the hope that only Christ can give us because who else has that power? God is working out a plan to turn everything for our good if we love him and are called according to his purposes. And he has the power even to take Our sinful and foolish choices and work them out according to his will. Peter talks about this back in Acts 2 again where he says, To the crowd in Jerusalem, Jesus was handed over to you by God's set purpose and you with wicked hands put him to death. Both of those things are true. God ordained it and they chose to put Jesus to death. And his blood is on their heads. Both of those things are happening at the same time by the power and wisdom of a God who orders all things according to his will. We have a God who is infinitely wise and immeasurably powerful and he is working all things together for you in your life. And think of how that Freeze us. Because if it's not Christ alone, that means it's on my shoulders, and I bear the responsibility for making the right choices and getting life to turn out the right way. And if that's true, if it's on me, I'm not really sure I want to get out of bed in the morning. What if I get out of bed on the wrong side? What if I don't wear the right clothes that I should have been wearing for that important meeting? What if I forget to do something that that changes the whole course of my day? And and on and on and on. If if you're a great businessman and and it's all on your shoulders, what happens when the business doesn't succeed anymore? If you're a parent and your hope is, you know, in in directing kids the right way so, so that they obey you and they turn out the right way, what happens when they don't obey and when they don't turn out the right way? Well, maybe it's the other way. You know, what if it's all just fate and, and it's all just you know, written up there somewhere and God's in control of everything? Well, if that's the truth, then why even get out of bed, right? I mean, if, just, if it's God's will, no matter what happens, then there's no point for me even doing anything, right? If it's all destined, again, you know, we're, we're hopeless. There's nothing for us to do. Is it me? Is it fate? No, it's Christ. It's Christ and the incomparably great power of God who is working in our choices to accomplish his will for our ultimate good. And it's aimed at your joy, your blessing, your life, the riches of his inheritance, we could say, for his saints. That's probably the best way to translate that phrase. Do you know that hope? because of the power of Christ. Not not just know it intellectually, but is that what your life is built on? Is, Is it what you're drawing strength from? Do you live in the hope, the confidence that Christ is ruling all things for his people? Do you have that? And then third. Only Christ really has the power to change us. This is that internal working out, the power that we saw before. Remember that, that, that we are his body. We are the body of Christ. And that in itself is, is amazing if you think about it. Okay, Here, here's the illustration. Here's my head. Here's my body. I mean, I know, not, not great examples, but it's what I got to work with. And, and they're connected together, Right? The head is over the body and directing what the body does. That, that's, what, that's what our heads do, right? If, if our bodies are not doing what our heads are telling them to do, there, there's some kind of a disease or a pathology that, that needs to be fixed. But it's not just about being over in terms of authority and, and direction. A body and a head are connected by living tissue. You know, it's, a head is not just like a computer that's stapled on top of our neck, right? they're connected in a living, organic, related, intimate way. And and that gets kind of to the essence of what it means to be a Christian. Some people might say the essence of being a Christian is, you know, being white or being a Westerner or being American. And, you know, we kind of understand that because it's part of our culture, right? And we have a lot of international people that come here and And they study because they want to learn our language, they want to learn our culture, and they say, you know, I come from a Hindu nation, or I come from a Muslim nation, and now I'm in a Christian nation, and I want to learn about your religion. And they see Christianity, and not not just internationals, but a lot of people see Christianity as just part of our culture, it's it's sociological. And and certainly the, the gospel can be reflected in any culture, but being a Christian is not just, you know, cultural phenomenon. Some people might say, you know, Christianity is about believing true things. And, of course, that is certainly a part of what it means to be a follower of Jesus. But there are a lot of people that have orthodox beliefs, and, uh, and yet it's not making any difference in their lives. You know, they, they grew up in homes where they heard the truth, and, uh, and maybe they're orthodox in their beliefs for the wrong reasons. They, they grew up, and, you know, it's just maybe I'm a Christian out of nostalgia. I, it gives me this good feeling of, you know, stuff I did in church when I was a kid, and yeah, I believe in the Bible, and I believe in the Sermon on the Mount, and, and I believe in the Ten Commandments, but, but for some people, there's no evidence of really knowing or following Jesus. And so the essence of being a Christian is not just knowing stuff about Jesus, and, and it's not just about living a life that tries to look like Jesus, because that's part of it too, but you know, it's silly to say a Christian is just somebody who follows Jesus' example. I mean, that's sort of like saying... You know, I could put on a white coat and a stethoscope and I'm a doctor because I'm, you know, I'm following the pattern of what doctors look like, right? And that doesn't make me a doctor. Just That's incidental. It's, it's outside. The essence of being a Christian is this. You are in Christ. You are in Christ. That's how the New Testament talks about Christians. You are part of the body of Christ. The essence of being a Christian is that the life of God, the power of God, the presence of God has come into you in a transforming way. Peter says in his second epistle, we are made partakers of the divine nature. Just take that verse home and and soak in that for a little bit. That's a mind bender. We come to share in the very nature of God himself that's the reason that the Bible talks about Christians as people who are reborn, regenerated, who who are new. God comes into our lives so that now we're changed. His heart beats through our heart and we see the world through his eyes and and we start to grow to love what he loves and hate what he hates and, and want what he wants. and His character comes to be seen more in us so that we do start to look like him and that's what it means to be in Christ, and why there's this incredible statement that we are Christ's body, the fullness of him who fills all in all. Jesus reveals what he looks like through his body, through us, through you and me. You know, think about it, you, you who are parents, you know, when our kids do something that's praiseworthy. Does it ever astonish you how good that makes you feel about yourself? Like, I didn't do it, right? He did it, but man, I must really be a good parent because look at, look at what a great thing he did. Uh, they're awesome, so I must be awesome. They're reflecting me, right? And then on the other hand, they may do something that's shameful or foolish or bad, and, and then that says we're bad, Right? Our children, in some way, are a reflection of us to our glory or to our shame. And if you think about it in relation to God, that's both exciting and a little scary. Because it means on the one hand, God can reproduce Jesus' glory and beauty in us if he really is living in us. Our lives can reflect nobility and love and generosity and kindness and forgiveness And we're showing people that's what Jesus is like. But then sometimes we can also be sarcastic and impatient and condescending and arrogant and rude and dismissive and proud. And we're saying to the world, I'm the body of Christ and that's what Jesus looks like. And I think what Paul is getting at here is the extent to which that soaks down into our awareness and our thinking starts to become the extent to which we have power to obey, to live a new life. Paul's saying, I I want you to know this. Did you ever think about how do we know things? Well, Well, for one thing, certainly it's just, it's study, right? All you guys are in school. You learn things by getting it in your head over and over and over again. Multiplication tables and baseball statistics and, you know, Who's got the latest CD out or, you know, the newest movie or the greatest meme or whatever? I mean, we learn those things by investing ourselves in them, by thinking on them, by reflecting on them, by making them grow large in our minds. But then we also know things ultimately only when we do them too, right? Because I can read up on, you know, how to throw a a curveball. I can become an expert on knowing how to throw a curveball, but I will not really know how to throw a curveball until I actually get on the pitcher's mound and do the motion. The knowing isn't just about being in our head. The knowing comes from the doing. And that means, you know, Jesus is saying, don't tell yourself, you know, well, I'll do it as soon as I feel the desire, as soon as I'm motivated, as, you know, as soon as I'm you know, kind of up for it. No, it means, it means do it. It means go for it. Step out because the, the power, the, the being reflective of Christ comes in the doing. That's how we actually know and how we experience the life of Christ. Don't wait to feel empowered. The Power comes as we take steps of obedience. I mean, th- think about this. Abraham is commanded by God to go offer Isaac up, right? I mean, you think Isaac got up? That, uh, Abraham got up that morning saying, "Man, I'm really excited to go sacrifice my son. I, this is going to be awesome. I can't wait to get up on this mountain, and, and I just know it's all going to turn out great." I, I don't think that's what we get the sense of from the Bible. I mean, what he did is he thought about it first. He reflected on who God is and what he is like. And, and the Bible tells us Abraham was persuaded that God was faithful and that he had the power to raise Isaac. He considered who God is and what he is like and he let God grow in his vision. But it wasn't until he got up on the mountain and started to sacrifice Isaac that God showed Abraham the provision, that that he points him to the ram that's caught in the thicket. And so they named the place the Lord will provide because God provides as we take the steps of obedience through the power of the Spirit in us. You don't find the power until you step out. You don't get the power until you actually start to go up on the mountain, to stretch out, to step out in faith. And when we do that, we see growth like we have never seen before. Because we don't grow in Christ-like just by knowing stuff about him. And no matter how bad your problems are, no matter how bad your habits are, the life that comes into us is greater than the death that is at work in our bodies. Only the resurrection power of Christ can overcome the deathly, distorted, diseased, broken parts of us. And that power only comes to people who belong to Christ. Look back at what Paul says in verse 15. Because I've heard of your faith in the Lord Jesus Christ, I. I've not ceased to give thanks for you, remembering you in my prayers, asking that the Father would give you the spirit of wisdom and revelation and knowledge of him. This power, this life that God offers is in Christ alone. It's not in our efforts. It's not in our merit. It's not in our deserving and it's nothing mysterious about what it means to know Jesus. I mean, you know, some churches will say, you know, if you want to be right to God, you need Jesus in the sacraments. Some churches would say, if you want to be right with God, you need Jesus in good works. You know, some will say, you need, you need Jesus in the pastor's latest book series. Um, Paul says, no, a Christian is someone who says, Jesus is my all, Jesus is my life, Jesus is what I need. It's Christ alone. And if that's you, if that's true of you, then this power, this life-changing, death-defeating power is at work in you and for you. Because it's all about, it's all in Christ. A minister was uh, in Italy and ran across a really fascinating site there. The grave of a man uh, who had died centuries before was an unbeliever and was opposed to Christianity. And, uh, but he was also a little afraid of it. So the man had, had a huge slab of stone placed across the top of his grave so that he wouldn't have to be raised from the dead in case there was a resurrection. And he had insignias and notes like carved into the stone saying, I do not want to be raised from the dead. I don't believe in it. You just think about that, right? Evidently, though, Before the slab was put on top of the grave, an acorn must have been down in the grave with the man. So a hundred years later, the acorn had grown up through the slab and split it in two so that now there's a gigantic oak tree growing up through this slab that says, I don't believe in that power and I want nothing to do with it. Now, His point was, if an acorn, a tiny acorn that only has a biological life in it, can split a slab of stone of that magnitude, what could the power of Christ do, the death-defeating, life-giving power of Christ do in us who believe? The minute that you come to faith in Jesus The power of the Holy Spirit comes into your life. The same power that raised Jesus from the dead. Think of the things that that look like immovable slabs in your life. Is anything too hard for the Lord? Is there anything that is not under his power? That he is not working out for our good? Think about the things that you're struggling with. Bitterness, doubt, insecurity, fear. Fear those things can be broken by the life-giving power, the death-destroying power of Jesus Christ. Because the more you know him, the more you live in that power. He has all power. Christ alone. He has the power to give you life, to give you hope, and to change you. Let me pray for us. Father, what awesome promises, what amazing hope. Oh, Lord, open our eyes that Jesus would grow larger in our vision, that we would know the hope to which you have called us, the inheritance that you have set aside for us and your immeasurably great power. Oh, Father, help us to know and to believe and to experience it that it's in Christ alone. And Father, if there are any here today who have never come to the point of knowing and trusting Jesus in that way, oh, Father, I pray that today would be the day that someone would say, I want that life. I want Jesus to reign over the death that is in me to bring life. Father, we would all pray that.